Uh, I think this is, um, whilst I was supposed to be doing my formless meditation, I couldn't help but reflect on the model, I must admit. Um, maybe that's a bad idea. <laughs> Drop a model in and then, then invite people to just sit formlessly. Uh, I, I think this is actually uh, a key to understanding the Mahayana. I think this is a Bodhisattva key because there's lots of ways you could explore the model um, but I think what's nice about it is it stops the two extremes. So you could say what well, down here is a bit, if this is the world of form up here, well surely the goal of the spiritual life is to get out of it, isn't it? You know, let's, um, let's transcend it, if you like, completely, get away from it. And that is quite a uh, traditional thing in many uh, religions, I think, the mystical traditions. You could say if you, if you sort of manage to transcend that and you identify with the formless, perhaps in some traditions they say that is uh, unity with Godhead or uh, it's a mystical state of oneness. And it's a valid experience. Um, and in some forms of Buddhism that's been um, seen as a goal. And this is where the Mahayana actually started to come in. The Bodhisattva ideal was about saying, well, hang on, it's possible to attain this transcendent experience, but what's out there? You know, when you come out your meditation, it's the world of form, and it's not just, you know, I said, gave examples of bricks and mortar and stuff, but it's the world of human sufferings, emotions, all the mess that we live in, um, joys, delights, struggles, the human story. So that's got to be taken into consideration. So if this is, it's valid, and it's, um, it's, the, it's the, the wisdom side of things, then this is so important because when you, Realise the emptiness of all things, there's still beings to save. So, this is the compassionate side. So, yeah, have a, I just thought an interesting model, really. I hadn't really intended to say that much more about it, but it just strikes me that it's a, it's a good starting point as to, well, why evolution? What is, where does evolution come in here? And I think that it, the evolutionary way of looking at life is a very important one. And it pertains to this top half of the model. It's the realm of form as it manifests. Yeah, the realm of form as it manifests. So I said earlier I was getting, uh, I've been getting obsessed by this whole notion, the model of, of, of the, the evolutionary model. I suppose it is a model. Um, but maybe it's a bit more than a model. And uh, so this evening I'd like to try and uh, unfold that a little bit and say why I think Sangharachita's uh, made such an important um, contribution, let's say, to Buddhism in this respect. I mean, as you all know, Buddhism's something that... Um, uh, can everyone hear all right? I'm aware this room's funny acoustic sometimes. Um, as you all know, you know Buddhism is a, is, a di- is a dynamic tradition. It's changed, it's... it's something that when it's been alive and effective, it's been a spiritual tradition that's evolved itself as it's come into contact with new cultures, uh, with new ideas. It's assimilated or absorbed or reformulated uh, its expression. Chinese Buddhism has a particular flavour and look to it. Japanese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, it has... Um, taken on board the Tibetan cultural um, ideas and ways of life and cr- created new forms of Buddhism. And here we are in the West and Sangharachita founded the Western Buddhist order and the Friends of the Western Buddhist order. Um, and I've got an ag- so I've got an agenda really uh, going on here which is to uh, revitalise this sort of notion of the possibility of uh, an evolutionary Buddhism. So my talk's called Sangharachita and Evolutionary Buddhism. Uh, I'd like to sort of revitalise that idea and to stimulate debate on the idea of the, what evolutionary Buddhism might mean. What does that mean? Uh, to cu- communicate my passion for it and t- to open up the debate as to whether the ideas of what evolution might be and how that might be compatible with Buddhism. Sangharachita thinks that it is. Sangharachita thinks that um, the that Buddhism has got an inherent evolutionary dimension to it. 
So his ideas of this go back um, a long way. Uh, back in the 50s, he gave a lecture to um, some Western-educated Bengali Hindus at the Cultural Institute in Kalimpong. That was about 1950. Yeah. So what, 57 years ago, he was starting to think in these terms. But apparently he sort of forgot the idea. <laughs> he sort of gave this lecture and then uh, got on with the rest of his stuff, what he was doing, teaching in India in Kalimpong, doing all his things, and didn't really sort of re-engage with the idea until he was back in the West, back in England in the 60s. And he did start to speak much more widely in these terms. And I think we'd be good, it'd be good to sort of revisit that much more. I think that for some reason we've lost it, uh, lost the connection with some of the things he was saying. And I think the time's right because there is a lot of discussion and debate in the world out there, not just within Buddhism, in fact probably not enough within Buddhism at all, but just in the world about the evolutionary dimension of life. There's evolutionary psychology, evolutionary sociology, evolutionary um, te- things about why technology is evolving. So people are using this sort of term and looking at the world in all sorts of different ways. So I think we're in a good position to, to re-engage with the notion of, a, of, of evolution as a, as, a, as a metaphor and as a creative idea. So he's, if you want to revisit some of the early talks, there, um, there's, pl- there's plenty in the downloadable. Um, evolution Lower and Higher in 1966. And there's the Higher Evolution Plan in 1969. And he, he thinks that perhaps the spark for using the, this evolutionary contact came, concept came from reading a book by Middleton Murray, who's, um, I don't know much about Murray, but he's quite an interesting writer. He, he wrote a book called God. <laughs> and I think he had a subtitle to me like um, A Study in Metabiological Evolution. Metabiological evolution. Um, in fact, I think Sangharachita's got it slightly wrong. I think the subtitle was something a bit different from that. But uh, I come across another reference that I thought metabiological evolution sounds like sort of one of those uh, one-off ideas. But actually, it's it's got some um, currency. Quite a few people. Deepak Chopra has used that um, uh, term. And the the fact the discovery of the polio vaccine, Jonas Salk. I came up with a, a quote from him. He's always an interesting man, but uh, he made this great statement. He said, the most meaningful activity in which a human can be engaged is one that is directly related to human evolution. This is true because human beings now play an active and critical role, not only in the process of their own evolution, but in the survival and evolution of all living things. Awareness of this places upon human beings a responsibility for their participation in and contribution to the process of evolution. If humankind would accept and acknowledge this responsibility and become creatively engaged in the process of metabiological evolution consciously, a new reality would emerge and a new age would be born. Small n, small a. No, I don't know. (laughs) It's a... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's using this term metabiological. So it might sound a bit clunky, but actually, I suppose metabiology means like metaphysical. It means something more than just the biological level of evolution. I don't know how many of you, what sort of associations and resonances you might get when you first think the word evolution. I, I might be wrong. My suspicion is, just through talking to people, that the first thing that comes to mind is sort of biological evolution. Yeah, Darwin. Maybe Darwin is almost like the first name for obvious reasons that comes along with that you know it's like oh you think oh right so uh, yeah there's uh, what's it called random random what's it called random selection no natural selection and um, uh, and all that sort of thing and that's how how we've evolved um, up from the apes and you know all that sort of stuff and of course that's really important it's a big part of the picture but what's being dropped in here is the idea that maybe it's even bigger than that you know, just maybe there is, you know, this evolution on the biological, physical level going on, but maybe there's something even more profound going on that perhaps inherent in life 
is uh, an evolutionary impulse in some sort of way. So that was Middleton Murray as, an, as, a, as one of Sangharachita's influences. Uh, anyone heard of Sri Aurobindo? At least the name. Mm, no, Sri Aurobindo. Interesting. Um, Indian born uh, uh, to, I think, quite wealthy um, intellectual Indian family, came over to England and lived in Manchester, Sri Aurobindo, for about five years. Um, and he was sent over here for a, to receive an education. Um, I think he was here 1879 to 1884. And um, there's an evolutionary writer called Alan Coombs who picks up on uh, Aurobindo. So he spent, he, and he, this is quote Alan Coombs, Aurobindo spent his entire youth from the age of 7 to 20 in England where he received a thoroughly British education at Cambridge before returning to India in 1892. This was a time when evolutionary ideas were widely and vigorously discussed in England and elsewhere. It is inconceivable that he was not aware of the growing influence of the theory of evolution. Moreover, although in his writings he was sometimes critical of Western science, he treated Darwin surprisingly well when he had occasion to speak of him at all. It is clearly more than coincidence that Sri Aurobindo was the first and greatest philosopher sage of India to bring evolutionary ideas to the core of his thought. So I don't know that much about uh, Aurobindo. He's another person I'd like to sort of look into a bit. Um, mystical end uh, of Hinduism, maybe philosopher. Um, he founded, I think he founded a place called Auroville. In, uh, it's an ashram, and I think it's still going. And I've got a vague, is that right? Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, Auroville. I, I don't know what they do there, but I, I guess there's, uh, it's founded on some of his, his teachings. So I'm just sort of giving a bit of background to where Sangrachita might have got some of this stuff from. And of course, Darwin was uh, you know, an obvious one for him as well. Um, so, as I've said, Sangrachita gave talks through the 60s on uh, the higher evolution. Uh, he gave talk, a talk called Evolution Lower and Higher, Conscious Evolution of Man, Buddhism and the Path of the Higher Evolution, that was 1969. Another one, Evolution Lower and Higher, in 1969. How Consciousness Evolved in 1970. Evolution or Extinction, Current World Problems in 1971. And the Bodhisattva Principle was the quite well-known, uh, famous Reeking Trust Lecture in 1983. And I really recommend reading that. It's a very good uh, exposition of the Bodhisattva Principle. Uh, and that's the bulk of the, the lecture. But as you get towards the end, he really goes into some good stuff about the importance of evolution. I won't say much about it here, but you can have a look at that. I think it's in uh, that collection of essays, The Priceless Jewel. I think that's in uh, those are all available as downloadable texts as well if you want to follow up on them. He's given several seminars uh, within the order and they're available. I think they'll be up in the library if you want to have a look at those. But um, I came across, in fact he sent it to me not so long ago because he, he got wind of the fact that I was um, getting interested in this. And I was very relieved to, to hear that he was very supportive and he said uh, he's very pleased that I was starting to explore this and bring this out again much more. And he sent me a letter that he had sent to uh, a scholar called Dr. Zenner. And Dr. Zenner had written a book called um, Evolution in Religion, I think it was. In, and so this is 1971. And uh, Sangrachita had read the book with a lot of interest, but Dr. Zeno had completely missed out Buddhism. And so uh, Sangrachita wrote him a letter. I still don't know whether he got a response to it, but I'd like to share with you some of the key things in there, because I think it, it, sort of, it, it really brings out what Sangrachita's pith understanding of why Buddhism uh, is compatible with the evolutionary approach. So I'm going to read you some bits from his letter to Dr. Zenner. It's Z-A-E-H-N-E-R. I, I think it's pronounced Zenner. Zenner. So firstly, he says, this is um, Sangrachita saying, 
why Buddhism is compatible with the evolutionary approach. Besides occupying a middle position between the atheist materialist and the theistic spiritual alternatives, Buddhism is more open to an approach in terms of evolution than either Christianity or Hinduism. So he doesn't mince his words there. Uh, the model, I think, relates to that as well over there. Uh, so, besides, so Buddhism occupies a middle position between the atheist materialist. So if you just think that the whole of life is actually form, this is basically materialism. It's just saying, well, there is no spiritual, metaphysical principle. There's no transcendental, transcendental principle. It's just form. And then this is where science comes in and you can analyse and look at all the problems of the world in terms of form. There is no God. There is no higher principle. It's that. So that's, that's the one extreme. Uh, and then, then if you say, no, 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 that's all an illusion, which is one you know, form of religious take on it. All this world is just an illusion. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhere else or it's, um, you've got to transcend it, get out of it, whatever. That's another extreme, actually. It's, uh, you could say that's a theistic spiritual alternative. So this is a model of the middle way in Buddhism. Sangharach is pointing that out. You need both. And then he makes four points about why he thinks Buddhism is compatible with the evolutionary approach. He says, in one form or another, the concept of the path has always been central to Buddhism. The path consists of steps or stages. These steps or stages represent essentially states of consciousness or of being which are progressive, leading the individual from ignorance to enlightenment. One could therefore say that the conception of spiritual development or spiritual evolution, what I call the higher evolution of man, is central to Buddhism. He's using man in the uh, pre-political um, correct uh, era, isn't he? It means humanity, inclusive. So that's the first thing. Yeah. So if Buddhism's a path, it's taught as a path. There's the eightfold path. Yeah. It's a progressive series of practices of deepening and understanding uh, engagement with the precepts and, and ethical practice. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a progressive development in there for the individual. Then he makes a second point. Uh, and he, talk, he talks about the Sangha. Yeah, the Sangha is so important. It's obvious that the Sangha comes around the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It's the three jewels. If you want to reduce Buddhism to a basic formula, it's going for refuge to the three jewels. So the Sangha's in there all the time. What does it mean? So the Sangha is the nucleus of an ideal community and it stands in the same relation to society at large as the individual stands to the, well, the individual aria stands to the individual prathajana, yeah. And the Arya is the enlightened being and the Prathajana is your unenlightened being. Thus, spiritual evolution is clearly seen not only as individual but as collective. So you've got the individual and now there's a collective dimension coming in. That's his second point. Third point, the central tradition of Buddhism, the Mahayana, finds practical expression in terms of the Bodhisattva ideal. This represents much more than a personal ideal for ethical and spiritual behaviour. The figure of the Bodhisattva is the concrete embodiment of the principle of spiritual evolution, both individual and cosmic. One of my favourite words, cosmic. <laughs> cosmic. And his fourth and final point in this letter to Dr. Zena is, I think sort of ties in with the cosmic thing. He says, the Buddhist scriptures, especially those of the Mahayana, quite clearly envisage a universe in the fullest sense of the term, in which, under the guidance of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas innumerable, all sentient beings are ultimately destined to enlightenment, even the Devadattas of the world not being excluded. In this sense, one may therefore speak of Buddhism as the religion of evolution, of spiritual evolution on a cosmic scale. Indeed, in texts such as the Sadama Pundarika, that's the White Lotus Sutra, this is exactly how the Mahayana sees itself. No tour de force uh, of interpretation is necessary. So I, I mean, I think um, I, I was talking about this. We had a we have an order convention where the order meets um, every two years, 
and I led a workshop and I was saying, communicating some of the same stuff there. And I said, has anyone heard of this Sangaracha's letter to Dr. Zenner? Expecting people to go, oh yeah, I remember reading that. And there was hardly anyone in a room of, you were there when you brought it was about 30 odd people, 35 people there. And no one had heard of it. And I just think it's such an important document because basically that's his pith teachings on why Buddhism has an evolutionary core to it. And it's really useful. So you could take some basic principles out of it because it's very inclusive. So firstly, if Buddhism is a path, then it's concerned with individual evolution. Yeah? So start with individual. I've got you another know, model. You'd be bored with that one now. <coughs> so I. Yeah, we're, indivi- we're all individuals, aren't we? Yes. Um, of course, we experience ourselves as individuals. And we experience ourselves as, presumably, we want to grow and change. And we have an experience, hopefully, of growing and changing. Well, that's a developmental model. That's, you know, the evolutionary model is inseparable from the notion of personal development. But it's not enough because there's we. Yeah, we. The we dimension of, of, of evolution is, is the collective dimension. That's what a sangha is. It's, it's, a, it's the collective that is evolving together. Something happens amongst us as a sangha that I think um, it isn't just like lumping a lot of individuals who are growing together. I think there's something almost, uh, it, it can't be separate, it's very hard to talk about, but you know what I mean. When we're meditating tonight, if you're aware at all of a, the sort of a, some sort of collective energy, it's something that happens between us. Very difficult to put words to. Uh, the word I've been using, again, there seem to be clunky words, I can't find more poetic ones, but intersubjective feeling to it. Yes, so we have our subjectivity, don't we? In a, in a neutral sense, just our, our inner experience. And then there's something that happens between us when we communicate. I think it's a valid, maybe even more important field of development than, than our own personal growth. It's not separate from it, but um, I'm just sort of c- considering that, that something happens in a collective sort of way. Um, worth thinking about, but... Certainly the fact that Sangha's in there so centrally means that uh, we have to evolve collectively, yeah, our collective communication. It's the, um, it's the, it's the evolution of the, the mood and um, uh, intersubjective quality that we have between us. We could all come here together and there could be a really crappy sort of atmosphere if we wanted. You know, if I, I could start insulting people... I could start sort of saying some quite quickly could cause a bit of you know frisson in the and any of us could you know could drop a few swear words in and you know I could do there's lots of things I could do or any of us could do and you know there would be a sense of something you start you know or we could sort of feel what I think happens when we come together like on an evening tonight some sense of lift that's there's something evolving it's experienced in terms of collective quality of being. Collective consciousness can, can evolve. That's, that's what Sangha is. And then you can take it even further. So there's you and me as individuals. There's us doing it together. We're not alone. You know, we're in it together. There's something qualitatively we cultivate uh, that's so important and that's so needed in the world. And then there's just like, well, let's go cosmic. You know, what about beyond the we? The, the, all of it. Why not just assume that everything's evolving. It, uh, and that's, that's why I'm quite sort of excited. I just sort of, so it's like, well, maybe everything's evolving. Maybe the whole world, maybe even the material, you know, the material world is, is evolving. Um, the collective consciousness of the whole planet could be evolving. We, as individuals, could be evolving. And if you start looking at life in that sort of way, uh, it's, it's, it's daunting, but it's inspiring. Because it means that, well, we, we can participate in that. And perhaps it's only going to happen if we do take responsibility for it. It isn't necessarily going to happen, is it, on its own. It doesn't seem to do that. So another, another if, I, I don't know if that's sort of making sense, but just another way, you could say I, 
This is playing with, I'm just playing around here. I, Buddha, we, Sangha, all of it, Dharma. Yeah, if Dharma's the, the ultimate truth of, of everything, you could make that link. I'll, it's the models for playing with. It's the potential of us as individuals, the potential of us as a Sangha, and the potential of us to realise the whole thing has uh, something inherently rich and full and of enlightened potential within it. Is everyone all right? Yeah? I'm editing. Oh, good. All right. I'll keep going. I'll <laughs> uh, to quote, quote Sangrachita again. Um, yes, just to, let's unfold it a bit this way. So uh, he says, it's no exaggeration to say, I think, that this concept of evolution is probably the most important general concept of modern thought. Yeah. So he's really saying it very strongly, I think, throughout all the things I've been looking up that he said about it. He says it that sort of strongly. I say modern thought advisedly because even though the idea of evolution, of development, even organic development, was known in earlier times, in an ancient time, it was known, if one can speak of it being known at all, in only a very vague, almost dreamy, poetic sort of way. If there was any understanding of this idea of evolution at all in earlier ages, it was more a matter of inspired guesswork rather than any real scientific, objective, grounded knowledge. As a scientifically demonstrable principle, the concept of evolution is forever associated with the name of Charles Darwin, because it was he who first traced the operation of this principle, concept of evolution, in detail within one particular field of human knowledge, biology. And he showed quite definitely, decisively, in the face of a great deal of dogmatic Christian opposition, how one form of organic life developed into another, the more simple forms developing into the more complex, and the more complex developing into the more complex still. And since those days, only a hundred years ago, the principle of evolution has been discovered to be at work in every field of knowledge and in every department of life. Wherever you find life, there you find evolution, there you find development. And at present, we know that the ramifications of this great principle, this universal concept of evolution, extend throughout the universe at all possible levels. In fact, we find Sir Julian Huxley writing these words. Um, I think Huxley was, was Huxley a friend of Darwin. I think he might have been. He sort of was a big part in popularising the notion because... Darwin was, um, you know, a lot, had a lot of flack coming at him. Julian Huxley said, The different branches of science combine to demonstrate that the universe in its entirety must be regarded as one giant process, a process of becoming, of attaining new levels of existence and organisation, which can properly be called a genesis or an evolution. So this goes back to this sort of metabiological thing. Uh, I think Sangrach is well aware of this. And um, I think it's important to be aware that there's the, there, are, there is a biological aspect of things. It's very important uh, and, and exciting. But there is a, a much broader sense of uh, evolution in, in his mind and in many other people's mind. The study of uh, emerging complexity in the late 20th century has led to the sciences of systems thinking and theories of chaos. This thinking has emerged in many fields. In psychology, it's this, um, Matt Laguna has come across this guy before and I couldn't pronounce his name either. He's, uh, he's Polish, is he? Michali, uh, six cent Michali. <laughs> oh, thank you. Say it, please. She sent me high. <laughs> oh, thank you. Someone Sorry? Thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> thank you. Phew, it's good some people know more than I do about this. <laughs> um, anyway, he thinks that the, the growth of complexity is the hallmark of evolution. 
And in the 1970s, Nobel laureate chemist Ilya, another name I can't pronounce, uh, Prigogine? Anyone? Ilya Prigogine? Don't know where he's from. Where's he from? <laughs> uh, he discovered how systems such as living organisms utilize energy available in their environments to reorganize themselves to increasingly higher orders of complexity. And the Hungarian systems, ah, he's Hungarian, because I know, I looked it up. Uh, Irving Laszlo, who coined the phrase grand evolutionary synthesis, wrote, in the penultimate decade of the 20th century, science is sufficiently advanced to resolve the puzzles that stymied scientists in the last century and demonstrate without metaphysical speculation the consistency of evolution in all realms of experience. It is now possible to advance a grand evolutionary synthesis based on unitary and mutually consistent concepts derived from the empirical sciences. So my point is that Sangratcher does acknowledge this sort of broader interpretation. He's using the biological Darwinian sense as a starting point and he acknowledges the complexity of the issue and actually sort of says, well, there's just a lot more to be done. And that's where I think we come in. I think we could all you know, research it much more and explore it much more fully than he has. I think he sort of started us off and, um, on, on, a, on an adventure to explore it much more fully. So sort of just to move on a little bit with that then, um, I'm sort of realised that uh, it, it gets very complex, but it's good to follow some sort of thread or strand you know, into contemporary thinking a bit more. So I've sort of gone from uh, Sangharachita's sort of 1950s, 1960s stuff, and he's quoted 1970s sort of um, thinkers, Prigogine and your mate, and, <laughs> and uh, we've had Darwin, who's you know, over 100 years ago. Um, I'm a great fan of the American... Uh, philosopher, uh, developmental psychologist, um, Ken Wilber. And I think he's got a few good keys. Anyone heard of Ken Wilber? Some of you might have heard of him. He's got some really interesting models and ways of thinking about it. Um, and I think that perhaps he sort of does take things further, especially in his, his sort of later, later thinking. So to sort of finish off, um, one more model. This is a Ken Wilber model. Um, there's a famous diagram, maybe I should have got it out, uh, that, that sometimes Sangaratch has been criticised for. It's, and he talks about the lower and the higher evolution, and it's a sort of a line that goes, you know, the lower. I mean, it makes sense. It's a good way of looking at evolution, which is the lower evolution is basically unconscious, and it's that which has got us to a certain point biologically and as humans that has given us a basis to develop to the level of consciousness where we can be self-aware self-reflexive consciousness and that's sort of where we're at in our evolutionary story that's why we're trying to cultivate more awareness in our lives and in our meditation practice because with self-reflexive awareness I think this is the crux of what happens next unless you believe that it is all determined, you know, there's some grand, well, it's all part of the master plan. Um, if you believe that, then why are you here? You know, what's the point? You may as well just sort of go with the flow and it will all happen everywhere. Either God's mapped it all out beforehand or there's some sort of master plan that's, that's not actually uh, regarded as a right view in Buddhism. Or, again, another extreme is, well, it's just all chaos and it's just meaningless and make of it what you can. That's another wrong view in Buddhism as well. Somewhere, um, there's a middle way. I think this is, uh, this, is where, this is the sort of sweet edge of evolution to, to realise that things arise in dependence on conditions, yeah? the, uh, the Buddhist teaching. And what evolves arises in dependence on conditions. And what happens next arises in dependence upon our individual responsibility in cultivating higher levels of consciousness, greater awareness, and our cultivation of spiritual community. So it's up to us. You know, the future isn't uh, 
it isn't the predetermined place. It's something that it's up to us to make. And I think that's what, where this sort of evolutionary Buddhist idea is going. I can't see another way without falling into extreme views. Um, there's obviously a drive there. There's obviously something that's pushing, you know, there's some sort of evolutionary imperative, yeah? Don't we all sense it? I don't know. I, I, sort, of, I, I sort, of, sort of sense that there's a drive, but I also sense that it, there's, a, there's something very much down to us to add to that, to create uh, a creative future. So, uh, I've just got waffled off a little bit, haven't I, off my point. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so Sangracha's model, lower evolution, higher evolution. Sorry about that, that was a bit of a sidetrack. Another way of looking at, at evolutionary development. Uh, this is a night, he calls this Ken Wilber's model, the four quadrant diagram. Everything on this side is the outer world. Everything on that side is the inner world, yeah. So we have an inner experience, don't we? We have some sort of subjective uh, experience within ourselves, meditative experiences. We change psychologically as individuals. There's something in, you know, that you can't actually see. Yeah, it's unique to our inner world. Um, and then there's an individual aspect and a collective aspect. So that makes us four, four possible areas or quadrants for, for, that we can see evolve. The spiral path. So I've decided it's a fourfold spiral path. New teaching. Yeah. But you're familiar with the spiral path. You know, so you've got the, the wheel of life and then you've got some, as a model, transcendent place and then you go up the spiral. Uh, I think it's a bit too simplistic and this, this one is a bit more juicy. So you've got four ways in which things... Fourfold spiral path. So... Over here is the realm of science, things and objects, it's observable. I would like to say, this is all up for grabs and debate, isn't it? I mean, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, just don't agree with this rubbish, but uh, give it a go. Um, what realm of science, I th there is an objective world. Let's propose there's an objective world. I'm not a philosopher, so 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 far, but I find pragmatically useful. Let's stay on some safe ground. For me, it's a pragmatically useful way of looking at things. I experience things out there, and I think that's probably the realm of science, of empirical science, observing things, how things are out there. That's uh, individual. You can, for example, you can observe atoms and molecules, and um, atoms are parts of molecules, and molecules make up uh, cells or proteins, and proteins make up cells, and cells make up organisms and organelles, and organelles make up. Yes, so you can sort of see a line of, of development in that one. But it gets more, on the out, in the outer world, it's more complicated, isn't it? You've got systems theories. So it isn't just actually lots of billiard balls banging together in different random patterns. There's, um, there's complex systems that are working out there. There's institutions. Things work together. Things arise in dependence on complex conditions. Yeah. So that's another outwardly observable thing. Uh, in economics, yeah, it's a complex systems theory applied in economics. If you want to create an institution like a Buddhist center, it certainly doesn't go linearly. <laughs> you know, there's so many different things happen in an institution: financial, practical, um, just making the electrics work, the, the the advertising, the dynamics and ergonomics of the building, all those sorts of things. Not to mention organizing people. <laughs> it, it, so that's something that can be evolved. You can have a less evolved institution that doesn't really work, dysfunctional, or a more evolved institution. Over here, the inner life, meditation, psychological development, cognitive development, our ability to think, our uh, emotional stability, um, meditative attainments. They're all things we experience as individuals. And down here, the inner collective is culture. The inner, it, it's a bit, it's linked with the intersubjective thing I was talking about earlier. There is such a thing as a shared culture that we have, isn't there? You know, we share certain values. Now, we can have shared lower values, 
or we can have shared higher values. And so therefore, the inner realm of, a, of any group or culture can evolve. Some cultures are very uh, insular, inward-looking, might have their uh, you know, great benefits and reasons for developing a certain way, but um, you know, uh, the culture is limited in a certain way. Some cultures are more outward-looking. Some cultures are more warring. Some, cult- some cultures are more developed artistically and aesthetically. Some cultures create a um, context within which to, um, new ideas can em- and emerge, creative ideas. Some cultures will squash new ideas. Some cultures let scientists and artists um, have their uh, creative impulses and express them into the culture. You know, some squash that down, don't they? So it's observably true that um, the, cu- the cultures, cultures can evolve themselves. So that's my four-fold spiral path. There's so much more um, I'd like to explore on that, but maybe you can take that away and, and help me with it. If you know, you, those of you, you'll know more about it all than me. But just exploring the possibility of evolution in all those different sorts of ways. I think helps to keep a balance as well. If you just see uh, evolution in personal terms, that's not a bad thing, is it? I mean, it would be quite good if we all evolved a bit more personally. (laughs) But then uh, what happens if that doesn't get expressed into the outside world, for example? These are false lines, aren't they? If you develop personally, then uh, it needs to find expression out into the world of objects. The institutions you create will be um, modified. If you get a group of people who are developed along this line on the personal inner life the institu- when they come together as a culture it will be a more developed culture and the culture will express itself in more creative institutions and systems does that make, make sense likewise if you set up an institution that's creative then well it'll, it'll someone can come into it and, and it'll help their personal inner life and there's a sort of feedback loops are going around aren't they all the time with this if you have a creative culture that says, our culture, hopefully, within a Buddhist movement, is a culture of um, growth, change, friendliness, uh, ethical practice, the willingness to um, change and um, let go of rigidities and uh, all those sort of positive things. If you have a culture like that, then that's, well, that's quite evolved. It's <laughs> moved quite a long way from uh, survival of the fittest, uh, from an animal... All on, the highest value for an animal, with a few rare exceptions, is basically you know, eating and mating, isn't it? So I think I will leave it there. I think that's probably enough, because I can sense myself going into territories I don't feel at all comfortable with. <laughs> but I hope those models have been useful. It's given you a bit of background to um, Sangharachita's thinking. Um, and hopefully that sort of inspired you eh, to think about the nature of uh, Buddhism as a developmental. You know, there's an interesting debate, isn't there? Is it de- developmental versus what? But uh, I think there's a profoundly developmental aspect of Buddhism that you know, we need to take on board. Okay, hope that's been helpful. Um, I'll give you something to think about. What are we doing? Five to nine. Does anyone want to respond to that at all? I'm quite happy to um, open it up a bit. I hope I didn't lose anyone too far in the middle of all that. Go on, the Prabhasha. How does the theory of evolution inspire your practice become? In a sort of day-to-day... Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it goes... That that model that I put out earlier um, it, 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 it makes I think it gives me a more balanced approach to my practice so I feel more like I want to meditate more deeply and I'm not a great meditator but it does remind me how important meditation is so I think it inspires me to keep a practice going uh, and it inspires me to uh, engage in the world much more that's my challenge I find that that is one of my practices, is to try and to do this. You know, I don't find it naturally that easy to...
to do. It's um, you know, to stand up and try and make sense of something that's quite complex and hopefully communicate some meaning. Uh, it's, but I think that thinking in these terms, I sort of think, well, if I don't, then I probably tend to um, naturally orientate over on this quadrant. And I do believe that, well, again, I said this is, you could argue it philosophically and disagree with it, but as a pragmatic model, it helps me to realise there are these other dimensions. So I need to engage with other people in, in the external world. It's all very good and well for me to read and study, and I like doing that. But it only starts to make sense uh, and clarify if I can get out, communicate with other people. So um, it inspires me to interact with other people. In terms of precepts, I think, uh, I haven't really made the link, but I'm sure you can make it very easily, um, practicing the precepts. What are the precepts in an evolutionary context? They are that which uh, facilitates the creative unfoldment of the evolutionary process itself. It's a nice way of putting the precepts. So when you are practicing skillfully, sure, the traditional um, take on it is that what's happening is you... When you practice skillfully, you lessen suffering in yourself in the world. And that's a, surely a good thing in evolutionary terms. But you could just say, whenever I act skillfully, I'm actually helping to create a new, a new world. You know, whenever we do that, the more skillful uh, ethical action <coughs> happens, then actually it is creating a new, more evolved world in that moment. I find that a really inspiring way of looking at it. This is like, and if I don't, I just know... You know, if I'm unskillful, um, I can feel the contraction and I could interpret that in personal terms and go, oh, I really blew it, um, I feel bad inside, I feel uh, physically tighter, you know, the whole thing, it's so obvious, I've made a mess, you know, I've said something wrong, I've done something wrong. But that's one interpretation, that's up here. If I use this model, I go, but also what I've done is I've sort of taken away from the evolutionary unfoldment of life. Oh, you know, it's like, that's a big one. But I think, and it's a bit scary to think in those terms. It's almost like safer to think in terms of, oh, well, my karma, that's bad. You know, I'm going I'm to suffer because of what I did, and I am. But if you then go, uh, but what I just did actually had a, a little ripple effect in the uh, unfoldment of life. In fact, it held it back a bit. <laughs> you know, I contributed to it. So I think that's that's been sort of working working for me just trying to be aware of of that I also have been thinking in terms of ego and uh, where is it there's two sides to each one of these isn't there uh, you know this could be ego <laughs> in other words it, what, what happens ego is when um, it's a question of arrows. So all these can go this way, or they can go that way. Uh, and so uh, if evolution is um, a creative unfoldment of life, let's say that's a good thing, you know, and creative unfoldment of life would be life which is more compassionate and loving and aware, then... Um, the directions always have to go outwards. So if I am outward-looking um, and aware of bigger perspectives, then uh, I'm evolving. If I am looking inward, then I'm being egocentric and trying to get everything out there to, to support me and, and I. So just thinking in terms of am I... Maybe I'm a sort of... A, I have a sort of kinesthetic sense of the world, I think. Sometimes I just sort of think, well, I feel outwardly orientated or I feel inwardly there's an appropriate withdrawal isn't there into stillness and meditation but in a sense of closing down so those, those are some ways in which I'm applying it in, in my life are they practical enough <laughs> go for it I'm kind of really convinced I'm just wondering you kind of sold it as a, you know, this is a, you know, this is a righteous thing, this is a bit controversial. What, what are the arguments that run counter to this? Oh, right, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I think it counters the, the whole thing of, well, maybe, 
it's the imbalance that, that's inherent in, in a... Um, it's this thing. <laughs> it's like, well, actually, when it comes down to it, you know, it, everything's all right just as it is. Then there is a, you know, there's a sense in which that's true, but um, it, it counters the tendency to want to avoid growth you, misusing that teaching. And the teaching is, well, just everything's perfect as it is. You know, just everything's perfect. Everything's perfect. You know, and I think there's a danger in that. You know, that teaching. And it is around. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? You know, be here now. I'm, this is getting on dodgy ground. I can feel the Eckhart Tolle fans um, going, be here now. Uh, I haven't read much of Eckhart Tolle, but, that, but I think there's a, that I sense that there's a danger that, you know, okay, just be here now. And there's nothing wrong with being very present, is there, in the moment and, and all that. But if you, if you then just sort of start using that to ignore and close down on difficult areas of life, then I think it can be a problem. So I think uh, maybe someone else could answer that. I, I, I just sort of sense that it's a counter to, to not wanting to grow and change and develop. So something in us doesn't like that. I think our ego, and I mean our ego in the sense of um, selfishness. Our selfish, there's a selfish bit of us, isn't there, unless we are enlightened. There's some sort of selfishness in us that <coughs> does not like, this is radically developmental, isn't it? It's very developmental model, <laughs> and the ego doesn't like it because it's threatening. Have I answered the question? Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering just to build on that point. I've got a number of questions actually, stimulated a number of questions in the point. Just on that last point. Is there a sense in which if we see it, say that evolution is a recognised that evolution is a, a a fact, a process, that's that's just ongoing. Yeah. It's just there. Then it's sort of happening whether or not I acknowledge it or not, whether or not I do anything or not about it. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. there a sense in which kind of the challenge for me is about whether I kind of facilitate that development mm. actively or whether I just sort of let it happen? Yeah, yeah. Whether I stand back from being a very nice and say, fine, it's all in flow, it's yeah. all in motion, yeah. just get it, do its thing. Yeah. Or do yeah. I sort of, in some sense, honour the works? <laughs> in some sense, honour the works. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that follows on from what Joe just said. It, I, I think the danger is that I don't. I, this is. I must just own it as a personal opinion. This one. I. I, I mean. I, I. I just don't get. I just don't buy it. That. That. I can sit back and that this evolutionary process will take me to some enlightened state. I, I just personally don't take that one anymore. I, I think that we do have to make an effort, a balanced effort, appropriate effort, right effort, it's all there in the Buddhist tradition, and you have to work out what that means, because you can make an in, you can, we all know we can make inappropriate efforts, and that isn't really helpful to the evolutionary process. So there is this sort of middle way thing. So, so are you saying that, that evolution doesn't happen by itself? I think there's an... Uh, there's, no, I think it's both. I think there's a sense in which... Sangharachita was like lower evolution sort of happens unconsciously and it's going to go on anyway to some degree and that's a complex issue but it looks like on some level evolution's happened. Look, there's the Big Bang. Uh, it seems to be... Okay, some people don't agree with it, but it tends to be the uh, fundamentalist evangelical Christian lobby that doesn't do that. The creationism, we just, God plonked us here as we are. Okay, I, I don't take that, but, you know, the general opinion... Um, sorry? 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago, August the 5th, just after lunch. <laughs> Je- what was his name? Usher, wasn't it? James Usher. He, he researched the Bible and got it down to that day. Um... When was the Big Bang? Four, four, four billion, no, 14.7 billion years ago. Uh, for <laughs> Before what? Or after lunch. 
14.7 billion years. Um, a third of that, there wasn't any light. I don't think, I can't quite, I, I'm really bad with, I wish I could remember numbers, but I think at least a third of that it was just sort of <coughs> things sort of, you know, basic material and matter and no life. And I mean, as for um, what, human life, it's a few million, hundred million years or something. Oh, the yeah. the people who know the figures better than me. Okay, not even a million. So it's... Okay, the, the way of looking at this is, never mind the figures. I'm not very good on the figures. But the fact is, there was a point where there was no human life. There was a point where there was no human consciousness. There was a point when there was no animals. There was a point when there was no plants. There was a point when there was no rocks. There was a point when there was no complex um, molecules. There was a point when there were no... Uh, atoms, the first atoms that arise apparently are hydrogen and helium, you know, and then in the sort of big star things they start to, according to the basic reading that I've done. So you go, something has, something massive has been happening in the last 14 and a half billion years. If you, you know, believe the, the, the science, there's something in, incredible has happened. So there's obviously... Uh, um, a lot of that's just for, for whatever reason. That's a big question. What is it? I mean, that just uh, reflect on that one and see where it goes. What's that thing in your video? How does a rock write an opera? We once we're rocks and now we write operas or something. <laughs> well, we once were rocks and now we write operas. Yeah, Brian Brian Swim. Yeah, yeah. But all of that. So, so there is some inherent. Yeah. I think. That's and, and to me, the question is whether it's got a direction or not. Yeah, yeah. It goes up in all, di all directions. It's a good question. And good question. I think the fundamentalists, <laughs> whether they can accept it or not, don't actually say that there's a definite direction to it and you can't deviate. Yeah, yeah. I think really, if I was saying something else then. Yeah. I keep thinking there's both. I think, I think there's some sort of... It looks like there's some sort of direction. But, I, and here I'm sort of right on the edge of... I, my I, just, you know, I think if you get this one, it's probably an insight thing, and I'm not there. But I, I, I really resist the idea that, that, that it's, it's necessarily taking everyone towards some enlightened point. But I can obviously see... Isn't it obvious that there is some sort of... If you look back retrospectively, it looks like there's some di direction, and it goes rocks, um, chemicals, plants, life, humans, consciousness, self-reflexive awareness, and we're there. And that's happened. It looks like there's some sort. And in the you know chaos and and things have um, gone extinct, haven't they, along the line as well? But overall, somehow we found ourselves here. Now, unless there's someone out there making it, which is one way of looking at that maybe there is a God out there. Um, or you could go with a sort of more emergent thing. There's a sort of trends and tendencies, and within that, it's just where I, I, I'm at with it, and I'm not completely wrong. Within that, trends and tendencies, which are going to still happen, it's up to us as conscious, self-reflexive, aware, aware beings to take the consciousness higher. But you might disagree with that, and it's yeah, not kind of choosing the direction that we want to go. Choose the direction. Oh, yeah. So rather than, or, or we have the choice in the direction in which to go. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than going with it. Yeah, I think that's because going yeah. with it may not be the way that we would want to go, or let's say as Buddhists would want to go. That's right. Well, that's why there's practice. So if you don't practice. If you don't practice, then you, what do you go with? You, you go with the lowest common denominator then. So we would go, we'd go elsewhere. You know, and it wouldn't be, in a, uh, presumably, in a, an open creative direction. It would be in a, you know, much in a sort of lower direction. You go, what happens when you stop practicing? My experience is I stop practicing and I start going down more into an animal sort of realm. I just do. <laughs> you know? Other, maybe some of you are going, I don't know, what is your experiences of stopping practicing? You stop evolving, don't you? Just, just to be devil's advocate. Oh, please. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really wonder sometimes whether 
I really wonder sometimes whether we're practicing. It seems like we're practicing. Ah, oh, so there's this image yeah. isn't there of um, somebody on top of a really big steam tanker and they they're in their little turret with their wheel. Yeah, yeah. And they think they're kind of hey, now I'm really driving the ship and I'm really in control and it's yeah. great. Yeah. But they don't realise that the wheel's not connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah. there's some stuff going on in the engines. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I know that we have to look at things in terms of language um, and time uh, and space. But I think more and more for me, well, at least sort of when I've practiced over the last few years, and Sangha actually sort of backs this up with some of the stuff he does, it's a bit like you get in the boat and you row. So you really put a lot of effort in, you put a lot of effort into changing yeah. uh, things like that. But I get a sense sometimes, it's a bit like, it just glimpses or something, that I'm not doing anything, something's trying to emerge through me, yeah. Uh, yeah. as it were. And I'm up there kind of going, yeah, yeah, I'm really developing the ethics, and yeah, this is brilliant, and it seems like I'm really, really doing it. Mm-hmm. But actually, the times that I realise that I'm not steering and just sit down, yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Then this thing seems to be able to really emerge. You know, yeah. It's just awareness. Yeah, so yeah. you have the developmental model, don't you, in terms of I'm doing it, I'm making changes. Yeah. And then you have the sort of emergent model where it's a bit like the less I think I'm doing it and really, really achieving stuff and stuff like that, and the more I just sort of let go yeah. and get out of the way, yeah. more that thing can emerge. Yeah. So I don't think they're con- yeah. No, I don't think they're contradictory. Actually, I think that if you get out of the way, then your your um, developmental you'll still develop. <laughs> yeah. You don't stop developing, so they're not actually contradictory. They're they're, they're both they are about awareness, and it's just like an atti- an appropriate attitude at a given time. So sometimes you just have a sense of um, I'm an individual striving, and at other times you have a strength, a, a sense of I'm an individual who's being drawn. And you get whole Buddhist schools yeah. that emphasise one or the other, don't you? You've got the boat with the oar. Yeah. And the sails up, and where does the wind come from? Yeah, but you had to put the, you had to get the boat in the water and put the sails up. That's your part of the deal. Wouldn't the middle ground there be that you're working on enabling the government? So you're neither driving nor having it just run through you, but somehow you're kind of you're working on opening the door so that it can come. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. also, it's, it's something to do with the fact that you wouldn't have the boat and the sails there without other people having help, you know, assisted in the making of the boat and the sails. And the thing that the yeah. evolutionary model does is bring in that sense of everyone and everything else. And it's never just you on the spiritual path. There isn't just a kind of one individual doing it. it mm-hmm. that, this model, to me, brings in more of the sense of mm-hmm. that everything else kind of contributes to that as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I. It helps me understand because I kind of struggle with rebirth, and, and as a Westerner, having been brought up with a kind of Darwinist model from Nehat, it helps in terms of kind of the concept of rebirth being about evolution. So mm. it's a kind of more—it's not my rebirth; it's, it's a wider concept mm. to do with me as related to everyone. Else. Mm. Right. Oh, that's good. That oh, good. Yeah, I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't been sort of making that connection, but that's a, that's useful. That's a good point. Because there's a sort of, I mean, you could, there's a, that's very helpful actually, those points, because it isn't just like, um, you know, me striving or some sort of sense of being poor. There's also uh, the conditions in which we find ourselves is a condition which is sort of in the middle point somewhere, isn't it? So the point about the Sangha, it's like sometimes you can um, feel a sense of just being lifted up and pulled along by a, uh, a spiritual community. You know, there's a way, well, what's happening there? You know, it's this sort of similar thing, but in a more <coughs> immediate local environment, I think. The um, reflective um, human evolution is um, chosen for uh, evolution, as you're talking about, is, is really where the, is the new way, because it's very new in talking in terms of the universe, it's extremely new. Yeah. And that's what's going to take over from the rest. Because if you think of the Big Bang and all that, sort of 14.7 billion years, um, 
and still the evidence at the moment is that it's just getting more and more dispersed and more and more dispersed. Mm-hmm. And so it will cool down, play the work. Yeah. In fact, that, in that sense, evolution will die. Yeah. Um, yeah. But maybe, maybe human beings, now that they've evolved a way to think and make yeah. choices, that's where all the new evolution in the universe will actually come from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't know, do we? But what else are we going to do? <laughs> it's getting in touch with that potential is uh, is quite powerful, I think. Because I'm not quite sure if we've got a choice. You know, the other one is just not, is to sort of give up. And then I think we'll probably, you know, it, it does sort of start going backwards in some sort of way. And that's still good, isn't it? In a way, when we're not looking forward. Yeah. When we're not, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's not as kind of obvious as Yeah, yeah. That's what suffering is, isn't it? Yeah. So it'll, I find that quite interesting. So, so you can redefine it's suffering. Feedback, isn't it? Yeah, re- evolving, isn't suffering it? is the feedback from the universe that you're not evolving. Oh. That's a new definition of <laughs> a ducker. <laughs> Say that again, how did it go? Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> suffering, ducker, is feedback from the universe that you're not evolving. That's useful, isn't it? Yeah, the awareness. There's something in you knows. Yeah, the awareness in you wins. <laughs> okay, I think that we should we call it an evening. If you you can carry on chatting downstairs if you want.